Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Tracy Holland, entrepreneur extraordinaire. Tracy is the co-founder and CEO of Hatch Beauty, an incubator for beauty and wellness products. She has won numerous awards, including Entrepreneur of the Year, and all the while balancing being a wonderful mother of three. On this episode, you'll hear Tracy's journey, the things she learned when she was sent to reform school at the age of 15, how she was fired as a waitress only to be promoted to general manager of the same restaurant. And it was at this restaurant that her life took a different path as she encountered a friend that really would help her look at different options for herself. And so Tracy's journey included living abroad for a year in Spain. And while she was living in Sevilla, she had these amazing aha moments. From there, her path took a pivot to politics. And while she was getting her graduate degree at Columbia, she decided to create a business around scented nail polish, which grew to be a multi-million dollar business in two years. Tracy has an incredible mind that mixes innovation and strategy. And over the last 10 years, Tracy has built an incredible and successful business with Hatch Beauty that has partners like Salma Hayek and Jewel, along with fantastic retailers like Costco, where she works with their beauty strategy. Tracy's energy is magnetic. And for all my listeners, please stick to the end to hear one of my favorite stories ever of a working mom trying to balance it all. And I think you'll ultimately see why she landed her Costco deal. (laughs) Please enjoy this conversation with the supernova, Tracy Holland. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So good to have you. It is good to at least see you virtually. I know when this is all said and done, I look forward to seeing you in person. (laughs) But in the meantime, thanks for joining me virtually. And I'd like to thank our mutual friend and superstar coach, Karen Eldad, for introducing us. So thank you to Karen. Yes, she is remarkable. I have a lot of questions for you. I know that you are a very successful entrepreneur, and I'd love to talk about Hatch Beauty Brands and all the companies that you've really launched with success. But I also like to rewind the tape a lot and start really from the beginning. And so if you could share with our listeners where you grew up, that'd be great. I was born in New York and raised in Terrytown. And my father was in defense, so we moved to San Diego when I was about six big move for us across country. I remember our station wagon with the dog and the stuffed animals and our snacks and being on the road for two weeks as a six-year-old. I probably drove them insane. I grew up in sunny Southern California, the land of milk and honey, as I say, only because it's a great childhood to be outdoors. It's great to 
have the beach and that lifestyle. And both my parents were hard driving professionals. I did spend a lot of time with a nanny or after school trying to figure out what I was going to do to fill my time because I wasn't allowed to watch TV. And that led me to really be very imaginative about what my future held in terms of how I saw myself in my career and wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I do hearken it back to those days where as parents, if you're forcing your kids to get off of screen time and be outside and use their imaginations, they'll figure it out. They'll live. (laughs) I certainly now when I'm leaving my two boys at home and I think they're just playing with a mound of dirt right now, it's good to hear. (laughs) And so where did that path lead you when you were younger? It sounds like a bit entrepreneurial, but where did you go to college? As I went through school, I really did struggle. I struggled with rules. I struggled with the expectations of performing on a certain metric with grades. I really struggled with keeping up with homework. When I was 15, my parents sent me away to reform school. I think as the oldest child, oldest girl of four girls, my grades were never successfully making their expectation. And I think the only thing they knew to do was to put me into a place where I had no social life, (laughs) no friends, no phones, no television. The school was called See Do, See Something in Yourself and Do Something With It. And it literally was around school, seven to three, Monday through Saturday, and then work crews. And then we did wilderness survival type trips. I learned my camping skills, how to wire electricity, how to jackhammer, how to cut down trees. I mean, we did a lot of heavy labor. I would say that that experience taught me discipline. It also taught me to recognize that I could get myself through anything that was difficult. When I got out of high school, It was awkward because I didn't go to prom. I was never the girl who went out on dates because I was sent away at 15. So when I graduated from high school, I was in this weird place of not really knowing if I was very smart and could compete in a college setting. So I took a year off and became a waitress (laughs) at the Western Boots Steakhouse. And I didn't wait tables very well. I ended up getting fired and rehired as the general manager because he said, you're really good at organizing people, schedules, and keeping people performing. I'll let you be hostess, general manager. You're never going to cut it as a waitress. (laughs) That was kind of my first year out of high school was earning money and figuring out what it meant to pay rent, not going to college. My parents were absolutely devastated, obviously freaked out. I just thought, you know what, maybe I'm not cut out for college. I don't think I can compete. I don't know if I'll be smart enough to compete. And it was in that year, I met a woman named Jenny Jordan, who became a great friend of mine. She had this incredible life. I mean, she spoke six languages and her father was a big oil tycoon and she was going to Stanford in undergrad. She was 17 and already in her second year. We spent the summer. She was a waitress. I was a hostess. She wanted to try working. I hired her on the spot because she seemed like such a cool girl. And we spent the summer and she really exposed me to 
the world of what it meant to be a successful academic and how to think of my career path as it related to going to college and how important it was for me to be thinking around successfully going to college and what it meant to be successful in school. I mean, she really was an angel in so many ways. That's fantastic. Wow. So then Tracy and Jenny solved the world problems that summer. What did you do with this newfound motivation? She brought me down to Stanford. She walked me around the campus and she said, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, I'm not quite sure. I'm passionate about business and politics. I don't know what that really equates to. And so she helped me think through college. I first applied to the Fashion Institute of Design in San Francisco, and I spent two years with her nearby. So we would do sushi Fridays and Saturdays. I would travel down to Palo Alto and hang out with her. And I did so well at the Fashion Institute of Design. I had all A's, and I recognized that not only was I successful and smart, but I could compete at anything I really wanted to do. And so I transitioned to San Francisco State. I majored in international relations and foreign policy, thinking politics was really my passion. Did a really rigorous program there, and so much so that I ended up being awarded a scholarship to go study in China through their fellowship program and was offered a year to go study in China for my foreign policy time. I actually declined at the last minute because Hillary Clinton was over there. I don't know if you remember when she was in China talking about women's rights and what it meant to be a woman leader. And I was a little nervous about going to China. So I actually switched gears at the last minute and moved to Spain and stayed in Sevilla for a year and studied Spanish and flamenco and all those fun things. I think foreign travel and living abroad for a period of time for all people makes such a huge impact, especially as people of the United States. We need to kind of get out of this a little bit of a bubble. My husband and I talk about this a lot. I know you're a mom of three, which we'll discuss soon enough, but we just talk about as parents, what do we want to do with our kids? And so much of it is education. But what is education? And for me, it's not just academic education, but that's social education. And so much of that comes from travel and exposure and seeing the world. So you are now in Spain, enjoying the culture there. What happened next? I discovered in Spain spirituality. That was really probably my biggest aha was I had taken all these books with me that I had found Deepak Chopra's Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, several different thought-provoking books. I spent my year studying Spanish, studying spirituality, and learning about culture and the world. And my aha at that time really was, I had an apartment, I had my bakery and my butcher and all the things that you establish when you go live in a particular area over time. And I think my aha was, look what I just created. In one year, I built a life for myself. I was earning a living, doing odd jobs. And I have an opportunity to go back to the United States and do grad school. I have the opportunity to go back to the United States and build a business. I can actually build anything. Because once you've built something and you've watched, it's just really a day-by-day process. 
and really thinking through, am I happy? When you wake up every morning, your feet get on the ground. How do I feel? Am I happy? Am I joyful? Do I feel good? I think at that time, my aha was I had created this sweet, happy life for myself in a foreign country where I knew not a soul. I had friends. I had a cute boy who I went dancing with. I had all my favorite things. That was a pivotal jumping off point to go home. And I joined the Clinton Gore campaign at that time on my way back because I thought, why not do a stint in politics and see if this is my thing? My parents by that time were not speaking to me because they thought I was being frivolous by living overseas and not taking my life very seriously. After graduating from college, all of my friends had gone on to great jobs. And I thought, this is the time for me to do this. And so I had a great privilege of doing that. One of the interviews, and I know I introduced you to Holly Mandel, who is one of my favorite women on the planet and people, but she had mentioned just in life's philosophy that people are doing this thing based on the should computer and what you should be doing and what people think you should be responding to. And certainly when you go to college, you should get a real quote unquote job. So it's nice and refreshing to know that there are many different paths. So your path led you to the Clinton Gore campaign. What happened after that? It was a crazy time in politics because there was a three-way race. Michaela Alioto was running for Congress, and she's incredible out of the Bay Area. And then Virginia Strom Martin was running in the 1st Assembly District. I was able, through a really top-level, incredible woman in CTA, I was able to get a position as running the field campaign for the 1st Assembly District up in Humboldt which is a crazy, weird place to live anyhow. And packed my things and thought, I'm going to go live in Humboldt County and help people get out the vote and talk about politics and what's important. I had a real opportunity to build an entire team of people who went door to door and we were very active. So much so that our race was really one of the top races in the state of California for maintaining the majority in the state Senate and the assembly. So I had a chance to work with the speaker's office to do what I would call black ops, so to speak, type of activity against our opponent. We ended up winning. Earth First came and stormed the headquarters. Dianne Feinstein called. Dick Gephardt came out and met with us. I was all of a sudden center stage because I was running the whole field the speaker's office ended up reaching out and then hiring me to come work for the speaker of the state assembly, Cruz Bustamante in Sacramento at that time. So I did a pivot and decided to go to Sacramento and figure out what it meant to work in the state capitol. And wow, what an experience that was. Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of our state. So it was really fun. It was a great, great opportunity. I got to work with Antonio Villaraigosa, who later became mayor of Los Angeles, and the whole team there, such smart people, such an interesting experience, loved Sacramento, and was able to, Cruz Bustamante's recommendation actually was helpful in getting me into grad school. All of these things that we do in life end up coming back. But it's impossible to figure it out. When you're looking at it and you're presented with an opportunity, you're thinking, what do I do? It actually all ties back together. 
Absolutely. And the people you encounter, so whether it was Jenny or whether it was people on the campaign, and hearing your background up until this point, I'm a betting gal, I would bet, okay, Tracy is going to get into politics, which is not the case. But then once you get to grad school, what happened? I did get into Columbia's master's in public administration, and I flew back to New York and I met with George Stephanopoulos, who was running the department at the time. And I met with a group of students and I quickly realized I'm actually an entrepreneur. I want to build things. I think he was very open with the fact that the public policy is a very back office job. There's a lot of hypotheses and writing and kind of trying to determine what the best approach is for a community. I really wanted to build. I ended up at his suggestion, going around and spending my week, you have to imagine I'm sitting with this golden ticket that says you've been accepted into Columbia, into this program. This is one of the hardest programs next to Harvard's JFK program. It was the hardest public policy program in the country to get into. I didn't know how to think about pivoting into something else, but I spent my week meeting with other department heads in other areas, and I ended up reapplying to an organizational development, what I would call change management, master's degree. And I met with the department heads and I thought, this is really where I want to be. It's the five evolutionary stages of growth of every company undergoes. They either reinvent themselves or die. I thought this is super interesting. This is my passion. I want to build something and I want to build something that gives back allows people to come to work every day, support their families. I ended up at that time also starting the scented nail polish company, which I did not know at the time would be as successful as it was as quickly. But those things kind of paralleled at the same time. So rewinding a little bit, can you expand on the scented nail polish business? Where did that come from? And how did that grow? Yeah, I had a girlfriend who was a forensic chemist at the Department of Justice. So she was literally like a CSI type person. And by day, she was out in the field doing these kind of crime scene investigations. And she and I were sitting around talking about this idea of scented nail polish and what would it be like and would it be possible? And she had a chemistry background. It took about maybe a year for her to figure out formulaic options for a scented nail polish that held a scent in a nail polish base that would dry quickly and not chip. So you have to kind of imagine you have three legs on a stool. No one could even get their arms around it. So it was literally working through modifying the base of every nail polish. And there are really only a couple of variations of nail polish base. So she had to reformulate the base. And then once we reformulated the base, encapsulate this fragrance in. I kept saying, we're getting there, but it needs to be modified. And here's what we could be doing. We started envisioning what I would call different kind of marketing concepts around this. So we approached Spencer's gift at that time with this and did one that was more gag oriented, like baby diaper and grass and fun fragrances. We were able to perfect that range of product. And then we approached what I would say a mid-tier retailer like JCPenney was probably our first really large account at that time. But there was just a whole host of learnings along the way. I had never obviously done any of these things before. 
you guys created this in college. So you just decided to call Spencer's and JCPenney's and these other retailers to say, do I have a product for you? Yes. And honestly, it wasn't just that easy. It was really about our manufacturer gave us a challenge and said, without you ordering a minimum order quantity of 25,000 per flavor, this doesn't really make sense for us to make because this is a lot of work. And by the way, the base of the formula has to be modified for the fragrance to stay and for it to dry. So that modification of the base was quite a lengthy process and not easy to do. But she was an entrepreneur as well, and she believed in our vision. She was willing to help us figure this out. So we did spend a lot of time in Riverside out at the factory. We did spend a lot of time with our formulators trying to figure out modify because each of the colorants that you add to the nail polish would then dry at different rates and need different amounts of fragrance for it to work. I learned so much through that effort. That was a two and a half year project. We generated in that two and a half years, maybe 2 million in revenue. And we were able to self-fund that both through student loans, actually, that underwrote quite a bit of that in terms of needing cash flow. And then I was able to negotiate strong vendor terms and then prepayments from retailers. But what I would tell you is that retailers want innovation. And so when I would call someone like JCPenney, I would get the main directory and then I would round robin until I get someone who would actually human answer the phone. <laughs> I would say, we have this nail polish that has a fragrance. And when it dries, it smells like chocolate or roses or whatever. We're trying to find your buyer in beauty or in spa. Do you have someone you recommend? And she'd say, oh, you're looking for Jeannie Smith. You need her. She's extension 4212. And then I would write that down and then I would go through the same process until I would finally get someone on the phone. I guess they wanted to talk to me. Not really. They wanted to see if it actually worked. So you're in college at this moment, but you have this amazing growing business that is revenue generating seven figures. What do you decide to do? I mean, you said you wanted to build something. You built something pretty fantastic early on. What next? I didn't even understand what an exit strategy meant at that time. We took some of my student loan money that I had and I applied for a patent. That was the best thing I did. I applied for a patent, five variants on the patent. Patent pending was on all the product. I actually raised money. I raised a quarter million dollars from a gentleman who owned the Ann Taylor chain of stores. And it just so happened I was in class with his wife and when I told her what I was doing, I painted it on her nails. And then she said, you need to meet with my husband. So I went jogging in Central Park. I met him at a cafe after I painted his nails. At the end of that, he said, how much do you need? I said, I don't know, about 250, I think. 250,000 go a long way. So on a napkin, literally, he just wrote out kind of what the deal terms were going to be. It was my first understanding of what it meant to have high interest, frankly, and retained earnings, and then a balloon payment at the end. I accepted his cash. I got it wired in my account the next day. I was a grad student, so I was like, holy smokes, this is just kind of very cool. And I built that over two years, and then we ended up selling that intellectual property. My business partner got a few million dollars. I remember it being right around $4 million for the IP but she received the funds. I never received a payment because the patent was actually in her name. 
that was my really big moment of aha that says, if you're going to build something and work hard, you need to set up and establish upfront what the terms are, what your exit strategy is, what the operating agreement should look like, who owns the IP, what does the IP look like, how is that used? I mean, who would know that? What I realized at that time was what was not valuable was the brand. Even though we had maybe a thousand doors of distribution throughout the U.S., I had met the president of Elizabeth Arden at that time, Paul West, who was very excited about the technology we had developed and wanted to use it for his sunflower fragrance under the Elizabeth Arden brand. And as I got to know him, he said, Tracy, he really mentored me during the entire time, even as the transition of the IP, we closed down the company, sold off the inventory, dissolved the business, the IP went to the new IP owner. His point was just what you said. This could not have been a better learning experience. And from there, it really did catapult my career in many ways with an opportunity to be front-facing, not only to retailers on bringing unique IP to them, but also with the industry at large. I really recognized from that experience that innovation and having a unique position on product with either a unique delivery system, combination of ingredients, experience on product form and format, all of those things are most valuable. And is that when Hatch Beauty Brands was formed? Yeah, I actually worked with a couple of other interesting IP companies. So I actually found in Japan and was able to secure the distribution rights for hydrolyzed silk aerosol-based spray-on hosiery. I heard about it. I heard there was this new invention. I got on an airplane. I flew to Tokyo. I tracked down the inventor. In Japan, they have a really interesting series of layers between inventor and distribution. There are many, many steps before you can actually buy a product. You have to go through several layers. It's an understood process, much like alcohol is sold here in the United States. There is a process. So I met the inventor. I was able to secure the distribution rights and I partnered with a very large billion dollar Japanese company called Senshukai, much like Spiegel of Japan. They have retail stores, catalog, etc. And I secured the distribution rights for the United States, Canada, Mexico, Central and South America. And we launched the first ever aerosol-based spray-on hosiery. Southwest Airlines approved it as their approved alternative to hosiery for their flight attendants. We sold millions of cans, both in prestige under air silk, and then we did air stocking in mass. And I probably... I would say I was 31 at that time, and that was really the first time I made my own first million-dollar business, my own personal business, million-dollar year. And I realized, again, that retailers were innovation seekers. We were able to open up about 30,000 doors of distribution within about, I would say, 12 to 18 months with a prestige line and a mass line. And that was under my own company. So that was, again, another very big kind of pivot, not only financially for me, but also recognizing 
if I could continue to seek IP. I did that with multiple products after that. Hydrolyzed silk being one, air stocking with, we did microfiber turbines and towels, which was a patented technology at the time. I did a device that you breathe into and it recognizes your free radical levels called FRED, free radical enzymatic device. So when you supplement and you take ingestibles, it helps you read free radicals. A lot of innovation. I mean, that's amazing. You're going from scented nail polish to aerosol silk hosiery. (laughs) I mean, this is like the most amazing and esoteric product line, which is fantastic. I would think you then come up with, I don't know, paper from apples or something next. But what is the evolution after this part of your entrepreneurship? It was this aha moment that said, IDO is this incredible business in the Bay Area that invented the mouse and all of these really interesting products. I really recognized there was this desire and opportunity to fill a white space for retailers and consumers in an innovation epicenter and an innovation engine that would be supportive of development of unique and new product and items and brands to satisfy the consumer who was looking for innovation and beauty, innovation and wellness. That was really the driver to the invention of Hatch Beauty as an incubation business. In 2009, when we formed Hatch Beauty as a beauty brand incubator, the word incubator And that's frankly the word Hatch or Hatch Beauty as a brand name was born from the egg, the incubation or development of something. I remember all the way through 2017. So we had seven years of very successful innovation development launching of brands. I would sit in front of bankers and they would say, I'm not sure I understand what is an incubator. And I'd say it's super simple. It's a shared services platform. Think of everything that you can share a service around. HR, legal, ops, procurement, regulatory, everything you need to build and make a product, we share the service. And so it's a brand platform with shared services, driving innovation for a retailer as our customer. In the center of the flywheel, so to speak, that retailer is our heartbeat who they are, what their customer is looking for, how we can satisfy an opportunity that they see in the market. We co-create that with a brand and typically an influencer leading the communication to the consumer. It seems super straightforward to me. (laughs) (laughs) They'd say, so are you a brand company? And I'd say, yes, we have brands and brands sit on our platform. But innovation is really where we pride ourselves. I know we spoke before and you have one of my favorite stories about how Hatch Beauty really grew. And it was one of my favorite stories. I would love to have you share with our listeners how that grew in terms of brand, office space, first few clients that were really meaningful for you. In 2010, that was truly our first year. We didn't have the pedigree to get some of these blue chip retailers to say yes and do business with us. We would innovate a concept and we would bring it to the retailer and they would fall in love with our concept, our creative, our positioning, our opportunity, the white space we would identify, and many times the celebrity. But then the question became, can you actually execute? We haven't heard of you. 
And I'd say, I don't understand how you couldn't hear of us. This rolls off the tongues of every major titan in our, in our state. We had our first really big opportunity. I'm talking over $10 million on the first wave of purchase orders. And the retailer very astutely said, we want to come out and see your offices. We're going to be in Los Angeles. And so we're going to make a day of this because we're unfamiliar with you and thought, okay, great. So that was a Thursday. <laughs> we actually went out and found a office space, which at the time our original office was probably 600 square feet. My desk used to be at the conference room table. And then the conference room table was used. I would get up and go sit at the desk of the person who was using the conference room. I thought, shoot, we really have to find a space. And so we contacted a local real estate agent. We located a space. We went around and saw maybe six spaces during that span of that Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We needed something with built-ins because we didn't have time to buy furniture, nor did we have any money. Then they were saying, okay, your rent is 13000 a month and we need first and last month. And I thought, holy smokes, this is nuts. I was so nervous. We were generating at that time maybe 40000 a month in billables. So you have to imagine they wanted basically equivalent of one month of income to secure a space. We found a spot. We fell in love with it. It had the built-ins. It was very cool. Is about 5,000 square feet. Now, by this time, it was maybe Monday. <laughs> These folks are coming out the following Thursday. We spent Monday, and I'm talking, we didn't have that much stuff to move from our 600 square foot spot to this spot because we didn't have that much to do, but we moved everything over. And then we had what was equivalent of 600 square feet of things to fill a 5,000 square foot space. By this time it was Tuesday, I thought, holy smokes, we got chairs for all the desks. That was quite an investment because we had these ergonomic chairs that were fancy. But what we realized we really needed were humans. I called the temp agency and I said, I need temps. I need them to come in on Thursday, professionally dressed, maybe 15 to 20. We went around and kind of counted how many spaces we needed to fill. And the requirement for each temp was they had to bring a laptop. They had to bring three photographs from home of family members. <laughs> and they had to bring their writing utensils, something they could put on their desk. I had them show up at nine so we could all introduce one another and get familiar, place them at desks. And then we invited our guests in from our retailer at 11. We walked them through the building. It was quite impressive. There was this great buzz happening. That was another requirement of the temps. They had to talk and act very busy. I mean, talk about really putting yourself in a situation. It was really, in hindsight, a very risky move, I think, in some ways. Although, in other ways, I feel like slightly mortified because I think <laughs> through just kind of how it all happened. But I'll tell you something it was at that moment that they walked through and they saw all of us and were so impressed with what we did that they said yes. And they were so impressed with our people and our space and everything. 
I don't totally advocate and I'm not advocating this type of approach necessarily, but there is a truth that no one wants to talk about, which is that people are not willing to take a risk on you unless you have a proven track record. And so as an entrepreneur, how do you have a proven track record if you haven't done it before? You had mentioned that some mentors along the way that you had met with throughout your career have really helped you in terms of being a successful entrepreneur and have helped giving you the tools to succeed. Are there a set of skills that you, in hindsight, look back and saying, these are the two, three, five, ten set of things that I think I have found in entrepreneurs or that you found helped you in your success? I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. There's the visionary And then there's what I call the integrator or the execution-oriented entrepreneur. I can tell you I know for sure where I stand. And now that I understand what I'm good at and what I'm not, I need an integrator in an effort to be successful. My vision must be partnered with someone who's very comfortable on execution. That is probably my greatest aha is knowing the entrepreneur recognizes their own skill set and ability to either be a visionary or an execution oriented entrepreneur. I find it rare that there's one in the same. And so that is the most telling to me is if the entrepreneur themselves has an awareness of their own ability there. It's so great that you say that because it is, to your point, self-awareness. And I think many founders or creators or owners don't have the humbleness to say, I can't do it all. Because to create something and to have that vision is so much different in terms of a skill set than to execute and integrate the things that matter. And I say this a lot in my business in asset management where you could have a really great chief investment officer and portfolio manager, but to run the business is really the harder part of it or just as challenging and similar to a restaurant. You could be an amazing chef, but to run the business, that's why nine out of 10 restaurants fail. It's not the food or cuisine. It's the operations and administrative part of the business. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is all along the way, you have built wonderful businesses. Hatch Beauty Brands is now 10 years old, which is incredible. You have three kids. How did that happen in terms of you managing to integrate kids and the social part of your life into what I imagine takes a lot of time building these businesses? Your mom. I think you really get it. I think all moms get it who are out there. I approach motherhood the same way I would approach building a business. I hired really good people to support me on a play-by-play basis, who shadowed me from the minute that baby was born to every conference call, every meeting. I insisted on nursing all three of my children through this six-month age bracket, which is difficult if you're attending meetings to also nurse. So I would bring the nanny with me into the conference area, and I would nurse and then hand the baby over and then have her stand by. If you talk to anyone, including Costco, was one of my first big businesses I was awarded was during the time that I had just four weeks earlier had my second child. And I brought her with me to a conference, my first kind of presentation to Costco. And she was out in the hall. I had just nursed. And she was out in the hall with my daughter. And as I was in the room with the team at Costco, I could hear my daughter squawking and I thought, oh gosh, 
this is awkward because she's hungry. I can tell, you know, as a mom, I'm like five minutes into the beginning of this presentation and I have to figure out how to say, you know what, guys, I have a question. Can we pause for a few minutes? That really ended up being my big breakthrough with Costco because I said, if you could just give me a second. I said, I just had a baby about four weeks ago and she's in the hallway and I think she might be hungry again. I just fed her, but, and they literally jaws dropped. (laughs) They all stopped and they said, you just had a baby. And I said, yeah, she's out in the hall. This is awkward because she's still hungry and she's in a growth spurt. So I can do one of two things. I can either nurse her and we can keep going, which is fine for me. I'm very comfortable with that. Or alternatively, we can pause and then move back. And we said, no, if you can continue, we don't have time to pause. I just threw my blanket on. I put her on my breast. It took about 30 seconds. You know how kids are when they're hungry. And then we continued. And so I used my one arm. I communicated to the team about the vision and the plan. They literally were speechless. And at the end of the presentation, they said, we will do business with you because we have never in our 32 years of being here, working with vendors, have ever had anything like this happen. True story. We're so impressed and we love your spirit and your tenacity and we're going to work with you. And they ended up becoming one of my biggest and best clients over the last 10 years. This is an audio podcast, so people can't see, but my jaw is still on the floor because I know, I mean, I was getting stressed. I was thinking about what you would do because I've done the, you know, the pumping and the nursing, but I have never had that type of experience. And I still can't believe that that happened. I'm almost fascinated that they said, no, continue on versus take a break and handle the baby. But what a story. Wow. (laughs) So for those who wonder why I admire and respect working moms so much, that is probably the extreme example of why in terms of multitasking to the extreme. But wow, thank you for sharing that story. For all parents out there, you could understand why working moms are so much more. I think they command so much respect and inspire me so much. Do you think about career growth in a traditional way. A lot of people talk about what they want to do in two years or five years or how do you want to grow their business. But for you, how do you define your growth? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this has been a really interesting journey this past decade. I'm so privileged to have had an opportunity to meet some of the most incredibly dynamic celebrity athlete, powerhouse, influencing individuals. And had a chance to work closely with them. And beauty and wellness is really impacting everyone in the United States and globally. We're all looking to feel and look our best. It's really brought an opportunity for me to be exposed to a lot of different thoughts around beauty and wellness, philosophies, technology. I think at this point, my limited time on the planet, and I think we all get to an age where all of a sudden we have our own children, we've hit certain levels of success, We've realized our personal potential as a human, and we've checked off the boxes that we thought, wow, if we were successful enough to do X, Y, and Z, then we've really made it. I've had those, all those moments now, and now I think the weight of the world for all of us is how do we make an impact? 
How do we change lives? Who am I in this world and what am I doing here? What is my purpose? That has consumed a lot of my time. And I'm working on a new project around multimillionaire mindset, which is really around how do you impact the way you think and how you live your life and the results you see. And I feel like I have so many examples of being able to do that, that I can help other people who may feel trapped or frustrated or stymied in their current position to think outside of their situation and figure out ways to shift mindset in order to move ahead. So I'm working through that business plan. And the premise of that is around mentorship and coaching and giving back, not coaching in the traditional sense of one-on-one coaching, but really what I would call masterclass thought process of how do I think differently or prepare for a board meeting or how do I walk into a difficult situation with someone with what I call signs in the parking lot mentality of being able to overcome what seems like the impossible thing to do. Well, I look forward to that. I would buy that program or that book or whatever you're going to produce, but sign me up for that. Now my round of typical kind of questions I ask everyone on the show, starting with who or what inspires you? My biggest inspiration is people who have kind of picked themselves up from difficult places and taken themselves into the stratosphere of supernova. Serena Williams blows my mind. Her story as someone who was, she and her sister being raised in Compton, self-taught and homeschooled by her father and mother and their enormous family success. Michelle Obama, I mean, I get goosebumps when I listen to her story and watch her path to being first lady and what it meant to be such a lightning rod in so many ways and keep her value and herself intact during that process with such integrity. Oprah Winfrey, her story blows my mind. Her story of even the color purple and how she ended up on that movie, her idea of intention and visualization and manifesting is so powerful and look at her financial success. So I would say those are the three women who are on my vision board. (laughs) Love that. What are you most proud of so far? I think I'm most proud of the human kindness and integrity that I've continued to maintain. I really do believe whoever we're dealing with, respect and admiration and appreciation are all kind of fundamental to how I operate. That's the thing I would value the most. I've been able to do that, successfully teach my children that. We've talked a lot about struggle and all the stuff that you've done to build up the businesses, but do you have one impactful or memorable failure that you would want to share and really how you overcame that? I always look at failure as something I welcome in business because I think, shit, I knew better. I shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z, and so it makes me better. I think as human beings, we're pretty hard on ourselves. So the failure is a word that has a double-edged meaning. I would say in hindsight, if I could go back and talk to my younger self in my early to mid thirties, I would have coached myself not to race out and get married to the first person who thought this is the right guy because he has good values and he's a nice person and he'll be a good father. I think 
owning my own passion, my romance, my availability emotionally, and knowing that I would make a great partner and have a great love and be willing to risk moving through my 30s, knowing that the right time, the right place, and the right person would appear rather than just kind of treating marriage like a business deal, which is how I really treated my first relationship and marriage, which obviously did not end in a success. I don't know if failure is the right word, but if I could rewind time and coach younger women that are highly ambitious and career-driven in their early 30s, all of a sudden realizing they want to have children and how do I do that? And I haven't met someone and I'm working all the time. What do I do? And I hear this often. And at that time, I thought, well, if I don't get married, I shouldn't have children because I don't want to have children without a father. I mean, there's so much we carry as women around this desire to have a family and then maybe not having the right person at the right time. I think that's its own whole show. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) I don't have necessarily the right answer because I now am in such a different place I'm appreciative of having an ex-husband who's a great dad and who's raising our kids. But the love thing is really important. And loving yourself, loving your life, loving your partner, expressing love and being in love with someone and not looking at having children as being a calendared timeline that you have to somehow figure out how to squeeze in before some magic thing happens. That's a lot. It's the holy grail of it all, right? It's right. finding the balance of love in personal and love in professional and love in humanity. But wow, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find out more about Tracy Holland? I have my private Facebook community that will be part of the podcast and the book, which is called Multimillionaire Mindset, Success Secrets for Female Entrepreneurs. Check us out there. We'll be launching in September. Awesome. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for being on the show. I loved all the stories and I just love your energy and enthusiasm. So thank you so much. Thank you. You are a supernova yourself. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you. 